What is the impact of social media on our existential concerns? Welcome to The Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. In this episode, we discuss social media and the less than obvious effect it has on our society. We're going to play for you an interview we conducted with Lila Rothschild, the program director of the Ernest Becker Foundation. Lila received her B.A. in psychology with a minor in French from Kalamazoo College. She worked as a research assistant in cognitive and social psychology labs, completing her senior thesis in terror management theory, what we call TMT. After college, she lived in France for two years, which furthered her understanding of culture and culture-based conflict, while also allowing her to have a third-person perspective of America's cultural worldview. Upon returning, she spent a year studying and researching TMT at the University of Arizona before joining the Becker Foundation. Here's the interview with Lila Rothschild. So, Lila Rothschild, welcome to The Hub for Important Ideas. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you for coming on. We really, really appreciate it. Hi, Lila. Hi. <laughs> yeah, well, I love your guys' podcast. Oh, uh, thank you. That's so nice. Let's start. Our subject, which you selected, which we love, is social media. Yes. Just in general, how do you feel about social media? I would say in general, it, I think it's a net positive for me personally, but I definitely see the pros and cons. The pros are that it's very easy to connect with people, easy to stay in touch, sort of a contact repository. The negatives, obviously, is the time zap on life, the unrealistic comparisons that everyone now can compare themselves to a million people, um, probably a little too much emphasis on ourselves. I would say, you know, the big data issue where they know way too much about us. And then probably just that it also creates silos, which is a big topic these days. But I don't find myself very addicted, but I've definitely known people who said they had to cut it out of their life because it became too much of, of a toxic thing for them. So it can go both ways. Lila, at the risk of sounding stupid, you just used a word silo, which I think is a big round thing on a farm. Oh, can you tell me what can you tell me what you mean by that? Because I don't think you mean a big round thing on a farm. No, I mean like echo chambers where you just go deeper and deeper into oh. your own worldview and ideas that you can find a community because online and that's that's not just social media thing, I guess that's an internet thing, but again, it's usually in like social communities and people they'll find something that they believe or that they're become exposed to and then you can just basically confirmation bias. You can, if you want, you can only seek out information that confirms what you already believe. And, and the more you do that, and the more you surround yourself by people who only believe that one thing, the more validating it seems. It's a lot different than in real life when you might be exposed to a couple of people who have that belief. And then you might talk to some other people who have a different belief. And you're kind of like, you get the moderation naturally, but on the internet, you can just basically rabbit hole into whichever part you want. And then because it's the internet, there could be literally a million people, even if it's a fringe belief, there could be a million people. And so yeah. that's going to feel pretty validating. So I think that's been some of the cause of certain ideological warfare that we see as well, because 
it's so hard to get moderation if you're, and I mean, the algorithms also will, once they know what you're interested in, they'll start showing you more of that. And then, so unless you're taking it upon yourself to be balanced and get your information from multiple sources, it can become a bit dangerous, I think, or just can be a little bit closed. (laughs) Yeah, we've heard it suggested that not only can it be validating, but polarizing. Right. I would say it probably, if anything, it can polarize people, but it also probably gives the sense that it's more polarized than it is. I think it's kind of the same. It's like the Amazon effect, like the people who leave Amazon reviews. It's like either the people who love it or hate it. And I feel like with or with anything, and I think that's probably the same with certain parts of social media or just whatever's happening. The people who are commenting are usually really passionate one way or the other. So there's not a lot of sort of middle of the road kind of mentality. And I think that can also cause polarization because you might think that it's a lot more polarized than it actually is. I would love it if I could think that because it feels it feels really polarized right now. So how does it relate to our society's existential coping strategy, particularly throughout this pandemic? How does social media relate to it? Uh-huh. So I think first and foremost, social media serves actually as a distraction more than anything else. I think it's like with anything aversive. If you're going through a breakup or whatever it is, whatever you don't want to think about, the major way that we get through things like that often is distraction. And so I think with social media, there's always something going on. There's always something to look at. It can be very surface level and it can be, you know, they say sort of just the the mindlessly scrolling phenomenon. And I think that's a very easy way to not have to delve deeper into yourself or into any sort of existential topics in order to have sort of any sort of epiphany, you usually have to be in a very calm and and reflective state. And so when you're on social media endlessly scrolling of all this content, your mind doesn't have as much of a chance to start ruminating on things and the meaning of life because you're looking at the latest recipe or whatever. (laughs) So yeah. yeah, And then, uh, but then, uh, and then those other components of self-esteem and worldview validation come into play as well, of course, but that's, and that's just more of the general cultural worldview itself. That's not necessarily specific to social media, but like how any part of our worldview can serve to give us self-esteem and, and validation if we live up to it. Social media acts as that function as well. It enforces social norms and it gives us social validation or self-esteem when people approve of what we're doing, things like that. All the things that would happen in in the culture in real life happen online as well. And our society is great at distracting us. This is just another one, but it's really, really good at distracting because it's interactive. Right. And Becker said, man is drinking and drugging himself out of awareness, something like that. And I feel like if he were alive today, he would add and clicking and liking or something like that. (laughs) You know, you go on social media and you get these TikTok challenges or random, like what type of cupcake are you quiz, you know, just these things are never ending. And so (laughs) how are you supposed to think about the meaning of life when you're just (laughs) bombarded with stuff like that? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But somehow that answer 
gets included in your database of 5,000 data points that they have on you. Yeah, not just what, what you like. What kind of cupcake would you be? Be, yes, cup- yes. If you were a cupcake. What matches right. your, it's like what personality <laughs> you are as a cupcake. There you go. Gotta be specific <laughs> here, so. Which probably tells them all kinds of stuff. Absolutely. Uh, that's the main, I think that's the main way. I'm A lot of the content on there, like what other purpose would that be serving other than distraction? I mean, you're doing... It's an absolute waste of time. (laughs) Maybe distraction is a good thing. There was a social worker I talked to for when I was in grad school for a a research project. And she was saying that she's like, I think denial is a great coping mechanism. (laughs) She's like, as long as it works, it's, it's works really, really well. And I'm like, well, true. But then it gets to that. It can, you can kind of hit a wall with it because then when it can be a slap in the face when you have to not, you know, when you can't use it. But she's like, as long as it works, more power to people. (laughs) No, I think it's very true. The issue with denial is not so much on the individual level, because she's right. What you don't know doesn't hurt you. And if you're in denial, then you can continue that denial indefinitely. uh, Fine. The problem is on the social level, on the societal level. Yeah, like things like climate change, for example. Exactly. Then we're living in our own reality. Our society's in this reality. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Climate change becomes, oh, this thing that might happen sometime. Right. So, yeah, I, that's true. But, I mean, I guess I guess that's what's kind of funny about her point is, like, because it, you can't have it on the in, just on the individual level and not expect it to show up on the larger level. So, I think it's true. Like, her point of, like, it, you can use it in your daily life, but if we're not aware of what those bigger effects are, then... I get her point, but I agree with you that like you can't just say, well, it's fine because it's not harming anyone because adding up, it starts to harm with, you know, the policies that we have in the the larger picture. What other ways do social media respond to or defend against death anxiety? I think that social media has played a huge role with sort of quelling existential needs or helping with it during the pandemic mostly because we've been, or if you are doing what you should, you know, you're trying not to gather as much socially. And so people are feeling more isolated. And so social media and and technology has enabled people to continue to communicate. So, you know, they're trying to, it's a little too late now, but there are some people, I think, or even the CDC tries to say physical distancing now, as opposed to social, because they realized that that was sort of the wrong framing, but it's a little too late since everyone already adopted it. But we can still be pretty connected thanks to social media. And you can still talk to people who you want to talk to pretty much every day, get together, there's Zoom, there's FaceTime, all these things. So I think that has helped in terms of feeling less isolated. And it also can make you feel like you're part of a group and that everyone else is going through the same thing. Um, You can I think also it it can, for some people, be a way to kind of get attention about certain things they're going through. And that can make you feel you get a boost to your self-esteem or, you know, people are reassuring you or whatever. You you feel a little a little better about your existential fears. So it's a way to have that place to, to vent. And I think especially in the early days of the pandemic, people were really commiserating a a lot. Um, I don't know if it's as much now, but I remember at the beginning, it was very heavily, this is 
even after a couple of weeks, like, this is so hard. And I like, I, I'm going crazy and all this stuff. And so then having everyone validate your feelings is, I guess life still sucks <laughs> or so people think, but <laughs> they're still getting that support from like their peers. You're the program director of the Ernest Becker foundation. Mm-hmm. How do you interpret the use of social media from a, a Becker perspective? I think the main mechanism that I see it being used as is probably a self-esteem source. And Becker talks about how self-esteem is one of the essential components of combating our, our existential anxiety. And that goes back to very early on how, how self-esteem is originally developed is through our parents in a way, like when you're a child, they're the ultimate authority. And if they tell you that you're a good boy or a good girl, that's, that's really like affirming. And those are our authority figures for most people. But then when we get older, you know, that maps onto the culture at large, because you realize your parents are human and not this ultimate source. And so, you know, your attachment style, how, how you develop that as a child, it, it goes then more into the larger culture. And the culture serves the purpose of providing that self-esteem if you live up to the culture standards. And I think social media is just, it's like a never ending cycle of, okay, approve me. Here's, here's what I'm doing that lives up to you. Whatever we are currently saying is valuable. The fact that people need that validation or there's a certain amount that there's definitely people who are sharing to share with their friends because they want people it does. It's not always this like insidious, <laughs> oh, I'm just narcissistic or whatever, but there's an element that is, you know, that by sharing something, you'll get reactions and approval or to some extent. And so, especially for people with lots of, of contacts and friends. And so if you, by sharing and, and saying like, here's what I'm doing in my life, this is what values I'm living up to. In, in a sense, and then getting people to, to approve of that is a very existentially comforting because it's sort of saying like, yeah, everything's good. You're doing what you need. You're, you're in our shared version of reality that everyone agrees on. Or it could backfire. You know, people could be like, why are you doing that? Or like they could actually totally turn on you and then your existential anxiety would not be quelled at all. But in a Beckerian sense, it's, it's definitely the, the idea that self-esteem, this is confirmed as well with terror management theory research, self-esteem is sort of this original death anxiety buffer because when we're little, that's what makes us feel like everything's okay, you know, when we're getting approval. And then it maps on to this larger culture and, and it still serves that purpose of making us feel like when we're getting the social consensus and validation it, that everything's okay. And it makes sense because it's very adaptive to have self-esteem serve that function because we are such a social species. It's probably evolutionary adaptive, the fact that we do crave that validation because we need to coexist and get along in groups. And so to have that be something that we're motivated to do, it's probably ad- advantageous too, in terms of the survival and success of our species to have that. And, you know, so the fact that it's so tied in with our worldview makes it to, to the shared reality, makes it so people are going to be motivated to live up to that shared reality and, and live in the group in a way that's adaptive with other people and not just like everyone for themselves. I never thought of this. I never thought of it this way. That's a completely unique take on social media that it is, in fact, a defense against death anxiety. It bolsters your self-esteem 
mm-hmm. through all these crazy little likes and little compliments that you get. And you get the likes, you get the thumbs ups, and you go, oh, this is wonderful. I always understood it to be a thing that people crave. Yeah. But I never looked at it from the Becker standpoint. I guess I would specify it's not social media in particular. Mm-hmm. It's, it's self-esteem, as you're saying. So it's, it's not like social media offers a different kind of self-esteem. It's the same self-esteem that you'd seek in other parts of your life. It's just, sure. it's a source. It's easily accessible. And you could get maybe like 10 people to see your sweater versus if you went out in real life, maybe only one person would or whatever. <laughs> so, <laughs> Yeah. You mentioned a negative aspect of it when you don't get those likes that you're craving so much. I'd like to ask what your reaction is to what they're calling the shaming culture, or maybe that's even related to cancel culture. I think they're a little different, but okay, it's related. I think that it's basically just the online version of social behavior, where if there's someone doing something that's not really adaptive to the group, you sort of ostracize them so that it doesn't continue to happen. Because as we know, social death is like an existential death as well, because it's so tied in. And self-esteem is so tied in with us feeling safe and following our death anxiety that when you're not getting self-esteem or social approval, like it really can feel like a death. (laughs) Like you feel completely just off in Mm -hmm. the abyss, really, if you're so ostracization. (laughs) It's a good word. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's, I think, that's definitely a very powerful tool that our culture can use. And it's like a weapon in a way. So with social media, it's just the online version in a way of when there's a behavior that we can't control or that obsesses us, that's a way to sort of fight back against it. So I would say that, for example, with the pandemic, trying to shame people for behavior that's like irresponsible going out too much and not wearing masks and doing these things that might put other people at risk despite what we know about the public health recommendations it's twofold in a way maybe you could say well that's sort of what should be happening because if there's behaviors that could endanger people like maybe the group should respond and try to get those people back in check but it can because it's social media it can be a little extreme because you instead of having like one or two of your friends chide you you might have a hundred strangers suddenly or more. But I think there's sort of a fine line because on social media, it can just blow up so quickly. And again, it's the scale of it. So if one or two of your friends really try to talk to you like, hey, you know, we saw you doing this, like, I don't know if we agree, like, can we talk about it, whatever. But if suddenly you get hundreds of people hating you and saying horrible things, it might actually backfire. That That's so extreme that you might then get defensive or just completely shut down it's probably not quite again the same as what would happen in the real world but i do think it's the online version of what people naturally do which is you just trying to control the behaviors that we agree are not okay collectively we agree and so if people aren't doing the things that we agree are okay you start ostracizing them that's what happens in real life as well in group behaviors sounds like we're in a giant twilight zone episode of the high school cafeteria right. in the social stratification that went on there. Yeah, I, yeah. I hated it. But you could also get death threats on social yeah. media that you would not get face to face in the lunchroom, hopefully. I don't know where you went to school, but I there weren't any death threats in my lunchroom. Yeah, that's so true. Well, that's that's the other thing. It's like it takes what would happen in, in real life and makes it this extreme 
abstraction in a way. I mean, because you're right, there's behind a keyboard, a lot of people are saying things that they might not ever say to someone's face. Yeah, you're invincible. Right. But then for the person who's hearing it, if it's a death threat, you know, how do they know what what's someone's just saying or how they Yeah, so I think you're right. It can get way more extreme than it might with a normal human dynamic in person. So let's talk a little bit about the negatives. That's more fun for us anyway. What what annoys you about social media? Mm, A lot of things. Right. (laughs) Um, What annoys me? I mean, I would say the self-centeredness of it a little bit. Mm-hmm. It depends, you know, because there's an intention behind it as well. I think you can sort of tell if someone is genuinely sort of wanting to share something with their small circle of friends who they know are are on their social media and it's just an easy way to like update people. That doesn't annoy me as much as when it's clearly just pure self-esteem seeking. When we spoke a little while ago, we mentioned this Washington Post article that shamed a woman who cut the line to get a vaccine. So that went viral. Everybody was shaming this woman. But the conversation about who gets vaccinated and who doesn't wasn't addressed. Instead, the whole story became, oh, this terrible woman who then is mocked publicly, viciously. And you say, okay, getting likes might be a defense against death anxiety, but is tearing down someone also a defense against death anxiety? I think so. Because again, the reason people are shaming her is because they are frustrated and probably scared and wanting the vaccine as soon as possible. So it feels unfair when someone supposedly cuts the line. And so it's like a way to exert control, even if you can't punish or change the fact that now she got a vaccine. It's the equivalent of what exerting that control back and feeling like she had some consequence in a way. And I guess that's a perfect example of what can be problematic about social media is you can hyper-focus on an individual to show an example of a problem, which is good to have an example, but then the actual problem can get lost because she is not the sole problem. You know, the fact that this one woman cut ahead is, is an example of the fact that there's probably some issue with the organization of the distribution and People are feeling that it's unfair, all this stuff. And so then it's like this one woman becomes the face of that problem. But then instead of addressing the problem, it's just about making her the evil one. And it's, I think it's a little bit of an issue with these things going viral and this quick to judge and and sort of the culture of social media makes it so it's, you can sensationalize one thing. And sometimes the bigger picture is, is missed because it'll be focused on an individual event or person. And people love it. You know, that's why it goes viral. It like, (laughs) it just spirals. And so that becomes an issue with social media is it's a lot easier to feel like you have control over like punishing that one woman than addressing the whole system. So it's like more satisfying maybe for people to be able to just say, you should be ashamed of yourself kind of thing. The problem is not that one woman got like a vaccine at the wrong time, (laughs) you know? Yeah, right, right. Part of the phenomenon of social media is the speed with which things are picked up, like the January 6th rally, Trump instantly galvanized that. Because that rally was planned for after the inauguration. And they said, no, 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 move it up 
to January 6th, and boom, 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 there it was, just lightning speed. So things like, especially negative things, things, you know, that upset people, all of a sudden they're magnified. Mm. And now you're calling for the vice president to be hanged because of a comment or two. Yeah, yeah. it can snowball so quickly. Incredibly fast. And I I think that's a little extreme, asking for people to be hanged. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean, maybe it's me. (laughs) (laughs) What we're saying here, if, if I can summarize some of what's been said, we're talking about human nature. Right, and we're yeah. talking about the fact that social media appeals to people in a way that we didn't have before. Yeah, we had media before, but it didn't move at this speed. And yeah. you could go on a TV, radio show, whatever, and reach a lot of people. But it also but, it wasn't it wasn't interactive. It wasn't interactive. It was one directional. You didn't get instant feedback. So it's a very different kind of thing that we're experiencing. And our friend Jack Mosco, you heard on uh, one of the podcasts, he sent, me an, he sent me an email and he said, I'm going to write a book about human nature just as soon as I get a clue. <laughs> <laughs> that, so, sounds, that sounds like Jack. That sounds like Jack. So, so that's what we're struggling with here. Human nature being exposed now to a technology that we didn't have before. Ken and I, remembering when there wasn't even a computer, let alone an internet, let alone social media, how different it is for your self-esteem and for your shaming, and then how things get repeated. Like you had mentioned to us, Black Lives Matter, when one video is just circulated endlessly, and it makes it seem like it's it's just an isolated incident. It sparked a bigger movement now, but there's a certain tendency for people to hyper-focus on specific events. Yeah, no, it's true. And then people can start nitpicking. People who might disagree with the movement might take that one video and, and try to say, well, look look what happened here, and this is why this happened, and blah, blah, blah. And it's like you're missing the point that this is a systemic issue. <laughs> right, right. And so you've got people now who are denying that George Floyd was killed by the policeman. They're saying he died of a drug overdose. Oh, he had COVID. He died of something else. And But that's a thing now, right? I heard someone saying that he was overheard to say, I can't breathe while he was still standing up before the whole thing happened. Crazy. Yeah. I have not heard any of that, actually, but I... I don't know how people can really say any of that when there actually is a video of what happened. <laughs> yeah, right, right. We've been having a wonderful conversation here with Lila Rothschild. We're just going to take a real short break, and we'll be right back. Don't go anywhere. So we're back with Lila Rothschild, Program Director of the Ernest Becker Foundation. We're talking about social media. Lila, we're talking about human nature, but we're also talking about how we perceive the world. How does social media affect our sense of reality? Well, we talked about it in the context a little bit of polarization in in terms of how the edges are so loud on each side of whatever it is. If, If people are going to social media with something, it's usually because they feel really passionate 
or you're joining a group that's all about this one, one issue or one ideology. And so I think it can warp the sense of really what the actual continuum of belief is in the U.S. and and other places because the edges are so loud. But really, like most of the time, if you're going about your daily life, you're probably meeting people who are more in the middle, even if you might not be talking about every single issue. But I think that the, the minorities are loud on all extremes. There are extreme radicals on, on, on most issues. But the thing is, is how dominant they are is really warped a lot of the time. So I think that has really changed our sense of reality. And as we talked about with sensationalizing as well, another way I think is that it has made us feel it can make people maybe feel that they're more important than they are or more, (laughs) more of the center of their own universe. I mean, because we are all the center of our own universe in our head. But I think, the, again, the, the validation can really make it seem like your world is a little smaller. And again, kind of that same, like where it, it, it can prevent you from taking that step back sometimes. You're living in your own private Idaho. as Right. Like, well, and, and like, <laughs> I, think, I think, and this again relates to something that was annoying me, but because of that hyper focus on ourselves at the beginning of the pandemic, which, like I said, it was a good thing that people could use social media to vent and get support, which, yeah, that's good. But at the same time, I was seeing so many people, even after like one week of lockdown, which let's let's say, I'll put that in quotes because lockdown, it was not anything like other some certain other countries that really locked locked the country down. It was like state by state, you never, you know, certain things were open, certain things weren't. But long story short, you know, whatever, that like after a week or to where there was some restrictions. Some people were already pretty much acting like they were in solitary confinement, like the way those posts were and like how depressed they were and all these things. And I'm not trying to minimize that, but it's just, again, that sort of lack of bigger picture because there are so many good things still about what we have and technology and for people who still had food and shelter and all these things and that the main issue was that they were frustrated that they couldn't see their friends it's just a little bit tone deaf <laughs> it really makes us sound like a bunch of spoiled brat oh my babies. god yeah truly to complain actively about that with just like what was me when some people like can't eat and don't right right that was hard for me to watch but again i think it's sort of like that's their reality though and let me broadcast my thing and get some validation. And then I think pain is relative. But the point is that one way to probably make yourself feel better about your situation is to get the bigger perspective. But if you're not getting that, then you'll all you'll see is that, oh, my life sucks. <laughs> but yeah. at the same time, not not disagreeing with you at all. At the same time, it seems to me that a lot of the objection to the lockdown, to the restrictions had to do with the concept of freedom. And listening to the videos of the mob that broke into the Capitol, they were chanting essentially two things. Stop the steal, mm-hmm. which of course is insane. But the other one was freedom. They were literally chanting the word freedom. And freedom to an American, liberty, libertarian, it's a vitally important concept to the whole idea of America, of the United States. It seemed like the pandemic reminding people of their death, reminding them people of their mortality, 
and then saying, we're going to restrict your freedom, created a conundrum. It created a firestorm in some people. And social media then reinforced that feeling that their freedom was being taken away. You're nodding your head. How do you respond to that concept? I think you're definitely right that the pandemic was this big death reminder, led people to basically seek validation, as research has shown, and as Becker talks about, when we're reminded of mortality, we want to cling to our pre-existing values and beliefs and uh, whatever our worldview is to then push that anxiety back down. And there were people who, for them, then if this whole freedom and independence, and I can't be told what to do, because that's like, too overwhelming. And that's sort of how they responded to these public health measures and things like that. And, and I guess the people, even at the Capitol, kind of feeling entitled to do that is, is one worldview. But there were people who had the opposite reactions as well. People who have more of an open compassion worldview, those values are important to them. We also saw a lot of that with the pandemic as well. Like that was a big death reminder. And some people like kind of jumped into action, started volunteering, helping their neighbors, doing all this stuff. So if those values were important to people, that's how they were coping. So it really depended. So I think you're right that the death reminder, it sort of galvanized reactions. But I think I would just specify that it's both directions. That's an excellent observation. You're absolutely right. And I've forgotten that. You're right. Terror management theory reinforces the prevailing or most prevalent feelings you have, notions that you have, Mm -hmm. beliefs, values, whatever they are, and people who felt oppressed Mm -hmm. to begin with had that exaggerated. Absolutely, yeah. Even more extreme kind of pushback to like, no, this is... Yeah. And then the people who had different values that were dominant to them would go more towards those other values. I hope Jack's listening. We're explaining human nature here <laughs> for your book. For your book, Jack. This will be chapter one. So, <laughs> so then doubling back a little bit, we spoke about self-esteem, how important it is in the defense against death anxiety. Yeah. And that's one thing that Ernest Becker certainly focused on in the denial of death. But we... Ken and I and some of our guests have also explored some of the downside of self-esteem, focusing on Mm self-esteem and our society. Would you comment on that? What's some of the downside here when we talk about self-esteem? Well, I would say there's no downside to self-esteem. There can be downsides to where you get the (laughs) self-esteem. Like self-esteem is usually always positive. However, where it comes from, subtle distinction, but I would say if your self-esteem is from a fragile foundation, then that's a little bit of a negative. For example, if it's based on your appearance, if that's your main source of self-esteem, that can be a little bit of a problem because it's something that can change. It's something that... It will change. It will change. It's (laughs) also... You know, it's it's not it's a it's more superficial. It's exterior, so it doesn't necessarily probably have the same quelling effect as something that really is affirming something about who you are or what your place is in the world in a larger sense of just what you look like. So I think that self esteem taken from a fragile foundation or from the wrong sources can actually almost be like a vicious cycle because you never really feel that it's secure. So you're always seeking more and more and more to make sure. So I think because you know it's precarious and so you can never really 
probably relax. So I think that that can become a little bit of like this, this vicious cycle in that way, because it's not something that's really sustainable. And so it's just this exhausting, like, trying to keep up with it and being anxious if it's not there. Whereas if you have something with a foundation that's durable, that's kind of can transcend fluctuations in, in whatever the current trends are, whatever, you know, if you have something that's a little more enduring, then it's much easier to, to use self-esteem as a way to feel like you're contributing to the world in some way. Self-esteem also has a problem if you turn the volume knob up too loud. Like you mean becoming into arrogance type? Yes. And, and blowing past arrogance into narcissism. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's true. And but I would say that actually, and I can't speak to clinical narcissism. Well, I think from our standpoint, Ken and I are social critics, self anointed social critics, but we've been doing this for quite a while. And so we tend to look at self esteem, narcissism, self aggrandizement in terms of the society, the larger, the larger picture. Yeah. And and the danger this has presented to us in that the emphasis on self-esteem turns into an emphasis on achievement, turns into quarterly profits being more important than any other consideration, including the environment. Yeah. So concern for the future of the planet takes a backseat to this quarter's profits. And when you look at our culture and we three had talked about this before, about the decline in the power of religion. Not the existence of religion. Religion is still with us, of course. But it's not like the pilgrims or the Puritans. It's not like the Middle Ages. It doesn't govern our lives. What right. governs our lives is wealth, fame, power, and like you say, beauty and achievement. Yep. So that has created a very unsatisfactory society. Yeah. The rate of depression and anxiety and stress and addictions of all kinds and suicide rate. And and then you see the rise of economic inequality and all the problems that that creates. Health problems like rising infant mortality and lowering life expectancy that we're seeing in this country that some people point to as a, a result of economic inequality, which is tied to, as Ken says, narcissism, self-aggrandizement. Right. And I would actually, I remembered what I was going to say. I think that it's funny because narcissism is actually, you know, speaking of feeling sort of disenfranchised, I would say that arrogance and narcissism are actually the biggest signs of insecurity. Like if you meet someone who's confident that's one thing but when it crosses over into arrogance those are some of the most insecure people you'll ever meet in your life the fact that you're compensating with arrogance is because there's so much insecurity and their foundation is so fragile i've never met someone who's arrogant where it didn't stem from insecurity if you're arrogant and you have the right to be that's just confidence you know like if you're truly confident about something there's really no need to be arrogant. Whenever it crosses over, it's always about insecurity. And so I always remind myself of of that because I find arrogance like one of the worst traits, human traits. And it can be really hard for me to be around people who are arrogant. But at the same time, I have to remind myself like they're 
pretty much like suffering and struggling because if you're feeling that insecure, that's a terrible place to be. And social media plays into this where your narcissism is rewarded on social media. Like the studies have been done that say narcissistic comments get more likes. Again, I don't know really what would count as clinical narcissism versus self-centeredness. Well, narcissistic personality disorder is maybe 6% six, 6 of the population have experienced it at one, some point in their lives. Right? Okay. But that number is way up from 20-some years ago, where okay. it was like 3%. Right. So, that, so, that's, so that's one factor. Yeah, but, yeah. But just the narcissism in our culture, where the words I and me appear in pop songs far more than they used to, things like that where these award shows are every three weeks. There's another award show where somebody's standing up and got an award. And I'd like to thank God. I'd like to thank God. I'd like to thank my parents. I think it relates to what you're saying, actually, with the decline of religion to being a prominent place in society. It's sort of like, not necessarily that we've replaced religion with narcissism, but just that when there's not something really quick and easy, this larger sense of meaning to merge with, yeah, we seek it in more, I guess, shallow sources, such as validation from others, appearance, more superficial achievements, things like that, to make us feel that we're part of something larger, whereas religion might have served more of that purpose. And that's, again, maybe why we saw less of that type of behavior in the past when there wasn't sort of a larger dominant overarching belief system, whereas now, again, it's it varies so much person to person, and, and the culture is a lot more secular, for sure. So I agree. It's interesting. I just just realized what we're implying here is that something becomes incredibly popular, like religion is, what, 90% of the world's population. Something becomes incredibly popular because it works. It works as a defense against death anxiety. And so social media works that way. Right. It can work against you, but it can work for you. Right. Interesting. Definitely, yeah. So we got turned on to, Ken and I, some other folks we know, got turned on to the idea of gratitude when one of Sheldon Solomon's grad students at Skidmore mm-hmm. did a study. And then Tom Pasinski had some grad students who were doing some research with humility. Yes. Also in terms of how these traits offer defense against death anxiety. And Ken and I were looking at humility and gratitude together as an alternative to narcissism. That, in fact, they're narcissism antimatter. <laughs> I like that. So, have you read or seen any research on this? Or what's your response to humility and gratitude as a possible defense against death anxiety that may be equally as strong as self esteem? Absolutely. Yeah. There has been some research showing that. Both people just who are naturally higher in humility, but also if you kind of artificially prime people to be in that mode of thinking about gratitude or humility, it has shown to reduce defensive behavior after death reminders. So it's absolutely a good strategy. The problem is (laughs) we need to cultivate that. and, And yeah, it's, I think that's really the question. The question is not like, does it work? We know it does, but There was an article, I think, from 
trying to see if it, I think it was um, 2010 or no, 2014. It was by Palin Kessabier. I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name right, but she wrote about a quiet ego. That's what her article is called, a quiet ego, uh, quiets death anxiety. And it was about humility. That's a nice idea. It's a nice yeah. phrase, quiet ego. Beautiful. Quiet ego, I love yeah. it. Yeah. yeah, well, I think that might be like an actual quiet ego and noisy ego. Um, so anyway, and they said there was a good line that I'll read if I can find for why it works, the, the explanation from a terror management perspective. So that being humble kind of fortifies you more against death anxiety. And, and it might seem counterintuitive, you know, like, wait, wouldn't you want to be really confident, you know? And so she wrote, Humility involves seeing and accepting the truth about the self. In its most basic meaning, this implies knowing one's strengths and weaknesses and coming to terms with one's imperfections. As a result, the humble self is relatively protected from the need for self-serving distortions and defensive reactions to self-threats. On a deeper level, humility also involves accurately judging the self's place within the larger context of existence. The humble person is thus probably more aware and accepting of the fact that against a cosmic scale of time and space, every human being is minute. This should turn personal mortality into a somewhat lesser tragedy and potentially into a source of clarity and guidance as to how life should be lived. Wow. Wow, that's excellent. That really is. That kind of sums it up. (laughs) Yeah. When we commented earlier about religion and you said like belief systems that quell death anxiety are really effective and get traction and things like that. I just want to comment that we are not trying to imply whether or not there is an ultimate truth to religion. Like, I think I just want to mention, those are separate comments. Like the fact that it quells death anxiety (laughs) is unrelated to whether or not it's, you know, objectively true in some sense, because we're not, who are we to comment on that? It's just the point of like, it does serve this purpose, regardless of, of whether, whatever you believe about it, we know that. And, and Becker was not himself anti-religious at all, actually, especially towards the end of his life. And even in the denial of death, you'll see that as much as he acknowledges the problems with institutionalized religion as a way to like control people, he also acknowledges that there's no better way to merge with something larger. And there's nothing that humans can provide for each other that would be as, as sort of comp like satisfying and consuming as, as something larger in that way, regardless of whether or not you want to call it religion or not. I think he believed in God, and I'm not sure what his like specific beliefs were, but he he had that larger acknowledgement for sure, and I so I think he might have maybe explored that as well. It's it's hard to know, but it's impossible to know at this point. Yeah, I guess, yeah. Unless Greg Benick discovers a cache of notes hidden somewhere in a drawer that no one was aware of before, right? We'll never, we'll, we'll never know. But yeah, Ken and I are on record as saying we have no idea. It's, yeah. a, it's a coin toss is yeah. if we're living in an intentional universe or not. And I don't pretend to have the answer to that question. At the <laughs> same time, right. At the same time, I think what Becker was offering did not have a hopeful outcome, did not have a hopeful solution and left us with a profound emptiness when he said that maybe the human race is not a viable species. That just knocked the wind out of me when I read that one. I had to think about that for a long time. Well, he said maybe. Maybe. (laughs) Yeah, he said maybe, all right. Uh, (laughs) 
yes, he was offering something very amorphous, like a life force dropping dropping these into the life force. But you said something that really resonated with me last time we spoke. And you said, well, maybe it's our job to pick up from where Becker left off. He died at the age of 49. Yeah. Tragedy. But maybe it's our job to keep going with this thinking and these ideas. Would you comment on that? I mean, you expand on that. That's yeah, why you guys are doing the podcast, right? <laughs> that's why we're doing the podcast. That's correct. That's why you're the program director of the Ernest Becker Foundation, I would assume. Yeah. I don't think there's like a magic solution or an answer necessarily to human nature. It's not like, oh, once we understand it, then we do this. You know, it's it's just that the more we understand, the more that we, as with anything, the more that we're aware of our tendencies, our reactions, the more that we can basically decide what we want to do with that. And I would say in terms of bettering our own life and being being a better human species, the more we're aware of the tendencies of human nature, it's, we have prefrontal lobes for a reason. So you can actually override some of our automatic, you'll have the automatic reaction, but then we can sort of choose again what our behavior is. It's like people say, I don't know what that's saying. Like you can't choose your emotions, but you can choose how you respond to them. Basically. Yeah being aware whether or not what our sources of self-esteem are asking yourself those critical questions. Like, am I happy with this? You know, is this something that's fragile and that, or is this something that's has a solid base that will help my psychological equanimity? Or is this something that is not making positive difference in my life and is toxic? So I think that being aware of what, what forces are in our lives is probably on a personal level, a good step for the human race. And then hopefully that would have larger reverberations. And then how does social media factor into that? How do we improve our lives and our society through a better understanding of, of social media and how it relates to our existential concerns? I think just what I was saying, being aware of the difference it's making in our lives. And I don't know really on a larger scale. Again, I think social media has its pros and cons on, on the large scale and we've seen it start massive movements for good and also for the other way. So I think with anything with humans, there's good and bad sides. But in, on a personal level, I think that it's just about being aware if it's making a positive impact in your life or if it's not, if you can like modify it. Like people being aware if, if you're relying too heavily on that for various existential needs. And if you are maybe trying to broaden, I would say trying to remind yourself, oh, maybe instead of commenting on this or checking someone's profile, I'm actually going to give them a call or try to FaceTime or have more of real human interaction whenever we can, because it's so easy to just get online and get just like meshed in that. Some people have social media timers for themselves because even though you think, oh, I don't need that, you know, it's really easy to go to check a notification and then you end up spending 45 minutes scrolling. So it sounds like silly to do it to yourself, like you're a child or whatever, but some people just, it's a little quick. There's so many different applications you can get for your phone that'll just give a little notification or a buzz like, oh, 30 minutes or something just to keep you in check. So there's a lot of ways I think that people can try to make it less of a major force in their life and try to just, again, everything in moderation. I think that including moderation. I think it's the best philosophy for a good psyche <laughs> in these days. And maybe not pursue that thread that wants to take us into freeing Britney Spears 
or Army Hammer's sex life. Right, but, if you were going to like check your friend's photos from their ski trip, just do yeah. that and then get off. Right, right, right. <laughs> what are the strategies for healthier coping? Like you just mentioned, limiting your time on social media or just having a strategy. What are these healthier coping mechanisms that are available versus social media? I think that the more real human interaction you have, you can get is best. So calling people, I guess if there are people who you look up to and who you admire how they live their life, you know, talk to them more, see what they're doing. And I guess it's just about asking yourself, do you like who you are? Would you be friends with you? Would you? That's a a great way to ask it. Would I be friends with me? Wonderful. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And if the answer is like, no, or I don't know, Maybe see what things that would bother you and what you might want to change and maybe focus on those for a little while. Healthy coping strategies are what adds to your life and does not harm other people. (laughs) So I think that's the summary I would say is like, and that's what Becker says. It's about finding what level of illusion he says sometimes, which sounds a little condescending, but like, what is your version of reality that you want that works for you, but does not harm other people. That's always the balance, right? And that's, I think that's what you can strive for. And that's what we should always be asking, like, does this help me? Am I, is this adding to my life? And is this harming anyone else? And if the answer is yes and no, then you're on a good track. Lila, thank you. I, this has I, been great. This is absolutely wonderful. great. Yeah, absolutely. Thank Sweet. you guys. It's so fun to chat and yeah. insights as well. I, it's great. We're probably going to call you again. I hope so. so just, just warning. Just warning. <laughs> I consider myself warned. I, no, this was an honor. Thank you. It's really great to to chat about some Becker concepts and uh, <laughs> existential things in life. We've been speaking with Lila Rothschild, program director of the Ernest Becker Foundation. Thank you once again, Lila. Thanks, Lila. Bye. Bye bye. You've been listening to an interview with Lila Rothschild discussing social media self-esteem, human nature, and how we perceive the world. Ken, what's your takeaway? I think Lila is sneaky smart. (laughs) How do you mean? Well, she starts out telling us that for her, there are the positive and the negatives to social media. That it's a net positive for her personally, very easy to connect with people, and the fact that it's all over the world, what she calls a kind of contact repository. Interesting phrase. Yes, it is. Yeah, And then the negatives, she says, the unrealistic comparison between yourself and a million people, a little too much emphasis on ourselves, the big data issue, where the corporations know way too much about us. For sure they do. Oh, yeah. People who said they had to cut social media out of their lives because it became too much of a kind of toxic thing for them. Echo chambers where you just go deeper and deeper into your own worldview and ideas and information that confirms what you already believe. On the internet, you can just basically rabbit hole into whichever part you want. And then because it's the internet, there could be literally a million people, even if it's a fringe belief. And some of the cause of certain ideological warfare because it's so hard to get moderation. Once the algorithms know what you're interested in, they'll start showing you more of that. It can become a bit dangerous. It polarizes people. 
But it also probably gives the sense that it's a lot more polarized than it is. Well, that's true. And then she hits you right between the eyes. (laughs) Right, yeah. She says social media has played a huge role quelling existential needs or helping with it during the pandemic. For one thing, it's a distraction, a defense strategy. For another, if you get a boost to your self-esteem, you feel a little better about your existential fears. Yeah, I was not ready for that. No, me neither. Me neither. She reminds us that culture serves the purpose of providing self-esteem and that people need that validation. She says this is confirmed with terror management theory research. Self-esteem is a sort of original death anxiety buffer. Yeah, but I never thought of it this way. That's a completely unique take on social media as a defense against death anxiety. I never looked at it from a Becker standpoint that it's a defense. She looks at it from different angles. She says, if there's someone doing something that's not really adaptive to the group, you sort of ostracize them so that it doesn't continue to happen. Because as we know, social death is like an existential death as well. And self-esteem is so tied in with us feeling safe and quelling our death anxiety that when you're not getting self-esteem or social approval, it can really feel like a death. It takes what would happen in real life and makes it this extreme abstraction in a way. It can get way more extreme than it might with a normal human dynamic in person. Yep. We asked her what annoys her about social media, and she replied the self-centeredness of it. But she noted that tearing down someone can also be a defense against death anxiety. It's like a way to exert control. She points out that what can be problematic about social media is that you can hyper-focus on an individual. You sensationalize one thing, and sometimes the bigger picture is missed because it'll be focused on an individual event or person. And people love it. That's why it goes viral. That's right. Yeah, that's a cool observation. It's a lot easier to feel like you have control when you're punishing one woman than when you're addressing the whole system. It's more satisfying. It can make people feel that they are more important than they are, more of the center of their own universe. Lila points out that the pandemic was this big death reminder that leads people to basically seek validation. As research has shown, and as Becker talks about, when we're reminded of mortality, we want to cling to our pre-existing values and beliefs and worldviews. This helps us push anxiety back down. Now, there were people who responded to the public health measures in the pandemic with grave concerns about their personal freedom and independence, and they were outraged at being told what to do. But there were people who had the opposite reactions as well, people who have more of an open compassion worldview and values. The pandemic was a large death reminder, and some people jumped into action, started volunteering and helping their neighbors. If those values were important to people, that's how they were coping. So it really depended on who you were. The death reminder galvanized like reactions. She specifies that it's in both directions. Mm -hmm. She said that there's been some research showing that people who are naturally higher in humility, but also if people are artificially primed to be in that mode of thinking about gratitude or humility, have reduced defense behavior about death reminders. 
It's absolutely a good psychological strategy. The problem is that we need to cultivate that. Lila thinks that's the real question. The question is not, does it work? We know it works. The question is, how do we cultivate it? She referenced an article from 2014 by Pellen Kespier, who wrote about a quiet ego. The article is called, A Quiet Ego Quiets Death Anxiety, Humility as an Existential Anxiety Buffer. The explanation from a terror management perspective is that being humble fortifies you more against death anxiety. That might seem counterintuitive. You might think, wouldn't you want to be really confident? But she points out that humility involves seeing and accepting the truth about the self in its most basic meaning. This implies knowing one's strengths and weaknesses and coming to terms with one's imperfections. As a result, the humble self is relatively protected from the need for self-serving distortions and defensive reactions to self-threats, like those in social media. On a deeper level, humility also involves accurately judging the self placed within the larger context of existence. The humble person is probably more aware and accepting of the fact that against a cosmic scale of time and space, every human being is finite. This should turn personal mortality into somewhat lesser tragedy and potentially into a source of clarity and guidance as to how life should be lived. This is heavy. Yeah, man. Listening to you say it over again, I'm like, wow. Okay, and then in terms of bettering our own life and being a better human species, Lila says we can actually override some of our automatic reactions and then choose what our behavior is. It's like people who say you can't choose your emotions, but you can choose how you respond to them. It's about asking yourself, do you like who you are? Would you be friends with you? That's a great question. Isn't it? Yeah. So healthy coping strategies are what adds to your life and does not harm other people. What Becker says, it's about finding the optimum level of illusion. What is your version of reality that works for you but does not harm other people? That's always the balance. A lot of important ideas, Steve. Agreed. So, folks, join us next time. Like us on Facebook. Please recommend us to your friends. You can find us at www.thehubforimportantideas.com. And support us on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash thehubimportantideas. We are 100% listener supported. Thank you for listening to The Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. Free Britney Spears. Unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> it's social media. <laughs> Stay safe, everybody. Stay well.